Subhaidi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Radio Talk. I'm Rachna. The Moroccan carpet is iconic, but Moroccan weavers, especially the women weavers, haven't necessarily benefited. This is where Nina Mohamed Galbert comes in. She's the creative director and founder of Artisan Project, a textile studio based in Tangier. Nina was born in Palestine, but she spent most of her life in the United States. About 10 years ago, she packed up her two young daughters, Alima and Maimuna, and moved to Fez, where she knew absolutely no one. Soon enough, she began working with weavers in Fez and the Rif and Atlas Mountains. She recently moved from Fez to Tangier, where she runs her home studio in a 1940s Art Deco building with a view of the Straits of Gibraltar. Her space is filled with piles of Moroccan textiles, Boucherite, Azilal, and Beni Warin carpets, Berber blankets, and all sorts of intriguing art and books. Most of the time, you'll find Nina on the road, though, visiting the Amazigh weavers in Anlua, carpet hunting, and drinking tea in old souks deep in the Atlas Mountains. Two years ago, while traveling in Morocco, I was fortunate enough to meet Nina. She's creative, vibrant, fabulously intelligent, and has a side-busting sense of humor. When it comes to being conscientious and fair, you could say Nina walks the talk. She lives, works, raises her daughters by practicing what she believes. And she's determined to make sure the makers of Moroccan textiles are valued and have a voice. But before I give you the whole scoop, let's head to Tangier and hear Nina tell her own story in her own voice. Hi, Nina. How are you doing? Hi, Rachna. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I um, can't believe it's been like almost two years since we met. And uh, and here we are oh, on Radio Okpapak. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. I'm really excited to talk to you and, and hear your story. So um, how about we start like from the beginning and... My birth. With Fez. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that vividly. (laughs) Fez, oh yeah, my rebirth. It is. Fez Fez is a rebirth, though. And you know why. Let's start start at your rebirth when you moved to Fez with your two young daughters. So tell me Mm -hmm. why Fez. Why Fez? So... um, Well, I was living in Los Angeles and I have to like go back a little bit because I've always, you know, I was born in Palestine. My parents moved to San Francisco when I was three and a half. I was raised there. And um, I think I've always felt or from the point that I was like really conscious of that feeling or that awareness that I that I didn't belong here that I that I needed to live somewhere else outside of the United States I just I guess I always felt a little bit like a fish out of water you know I had friends and everything but I had a vivid imagination and I was constantly was a voracious reader and um, a fiction and I always had fantasies of living somewhere else traveling um, beyond the borders of the United States. And I think that um, after moving to Los Angeles and having my daughters, I just, that dream kind of faded a little bit, but it was reinvigorated or I was re-inspired 
when some good friends of mine who are um, originally from India decided to leave the Bay Area and go and live in Goa, just start all over again. And they had two daughters as well. So I thought, you know what, if they can do it, I can do it. I always loved traditional crafts and both my mother and my grandmother and my aunts, you know, growing up, they all, uh, they had a passion for embroidery and knitting. Embroidery is very traditional in Palestinian culture and I just always had a fascination with textiles. And though I had never been to Morocco, I loved, I loved the Moroccan aesthetic, um, the architecture, the colors, the textiles from there. And I narrowed in on Fez because Fez is the craft capital of Morocco. As far as I wanted to live in a Moroccan city that was more um, traditional and that was lesser known than, say, Marrakesh is. When Nina arrived in Fez, there was some adjustment. Los Angeles' multi-lane superhighways and perpetual modern gridlock was replaced by the imam's call to prayer, the din of mallets and hammers pounding, hands and feet working the looms, peddlers hawking, and the clickety-clack of donkeys moving slowly over narrow, shoulder-width alleys, their backs laden with tanned leather and sundry items. The majority of weavers in Fez are men. As a single Palestinian woman, getting her footing in the system involves some trials and tribulations. But a commitment to collaboration and equity led Nina to find the right partners and the right situation. Let's hear Nina explain how it works in Fez. In Fez, there are no most, I didn't meet any of them. I don't think there are any cooperatives of women weavers in Fez. I was working with men and the men are so primarily in the weaving community. The men are the ones who um, were making blankets and jalabas. You know, the jalabas are like the robes or traditional robes that men and women right. wear. And uh, traditionally, the, the men's jalabas are made uh, from wool. So they're woven out of wool. But that typically is considered man's, a man's job because it's a little more labor intensive. You know, you have to put more muscle into it and you're standing all day long. The women mm -hmm. are the ones who are um, weaving rugs, weaving carpets, and they work on the vertical looms. I... Um, was fortunate enough to meet a master brocade weaver who is an elder and very knowledgeable and an, an honest person and, and, and knew the right weavers that, that I could create um, mutually beneficial relationships with. So he introduced me to someone who I still work with. His name is Yehya. And he's in his mid-30s. He's a fourth-generation weaver. He was taught by his elderly father. So when he was a child of, um, when he was about seven or eight years old, he was sitting by his father, and he was the product of his father's sixth marriage. And he had all these wives, um, and he was about, 
maybe his father was about 70 years old. So he was taught by his father when he said he could barely even reach the petals of the loom. He's an amazing person. And, you know, working with Yehia, um, was, was a, it was, and it still is a wonderful experience. What's great about, uh, working with someone that is not only knowledgeable, but open-minded because some weavers don't really, they just want to work on traditional things. You know, if you come to them with, with, uh, a design that's different, they'll say, and, and you, you know, trying to push them a little bit, they'll say no. Like, you know, can we do this with the knot? Can we create more texture? Can we use a different type of wool? And, and he's, he's very open to trying new things. And sometimes, you know, when I, with him and with my, with all the people that I work with, I always say that it's a collaborative experience. I don't come from a design background. I don't, I didn't study design formally. I have a degree in journalism, you know? So for me though, I know what I like, but I'm not a weaver and I don't really, you know, I still didn't really understand what was, um, what was possible and what wasn't possible. So if I would come to him with a textile and I, felt that, you know, I want to do something else because I was doing all of these pom-pom wool blankets. And initially, you know, they were something that you could find in Morocco, but no one was doing them in different colors. You know, at the time they were just in like these reds and browns and not interesting. And I started to work with these blankets and do them in neon colors and that kind of caught on and then everyone started doing them in Marrakesh and I wanted to move away from that. So I thought I want to do something that's more textured and that creates, that's a little more complicated where there's more craftsmanship involved, but I couldn't create these pieces without the knowledge of my weaver. So we'd sit together, I'd show him my sketches and he would come to me and say, hey, Nina, we can't do that, but why don't we do this? And let's try doing it this way. So every piece that we have, you know, I can't take credit for, even though it was it definitely, say, I gave direction, but Yehia is the one that would take it further. And it's two of us working together. And for me to see, like, how, I mean, he's definitely taught me so much. And... And also what's interesting to see is how our relationship has changed the way he approaches traditional designs. And now when I go to his um, atelier, his workshop, I can see that he's incorporated like some of the things that we've worked on into his own work. And that's great. That's progress. You know, that's part of the creative, the creative process. So when we first started working together too, he was a struggling weaver and he has children to support. And, um, for it, it's important that I see like when you're working with someone and when I say asking questions and making sure that even if someone, you know, even if they quote to you, even if they quote you a specific price, but you do the math in your head and you're like, God, how can they live off that money? It's not fair. You know, you can't just like, just because someone um, who maybe just doesn't know any better or uh, doesn't really understand the value of their work gives you a quote and you take that 
and no, very knowing very well that hey you're going to make a you know a huge markup on this because his prices are way too low if you do that i just feel like it's completely unfair even if that artisan set the price it's important for you to really examine that pricing and think if someone is working x amount of hours on this piece and they're only getting that much and you're conscious of how much they're that they're making and that doesn't bother you there that's a problem i think that like for well, for me it was important that as my business grew i could see that yahya's business is growing and thriving too you see so we heard about fez now let's move on to nina's work with the amazigh or berber women weavers across the atlas mountains specifically in anlua As Nina tells us, the Moroccan carpet has grown exponentially, but the weavers who make them are not faring so well. A system of production where the makers are undervalued and not properly compensated could very well lead to the disappearance of the Moroccan carpet. Nina and Artisan Project are currently working on a grant to encourage more young women in Anlua to weave. But as Nina tells us, it's not simply getting more women to the loom. As a producer and designer, it's about valuing the work and the textiles properly and fairly throughout the supply chain. And as a consumer, it's about taking time to ask questions. So I started working with the male weavers in Fez, and then slowly I, you know, I was initially I love the carpets, love, love the carpets. And initially it was like the Bushel Wayat rugs and the Azilal rugs because I was really into neon colors at that time. A lot of my textiles reflected that. So I was using lots of bright, bright colors. I really appreciated carpets and I started to collect some. And then that's when I, you know, I started thinking, hmm, maybe I'll just start designing my own carpets, but I want to work with women and... I want to work with cooperatives. I just felt like that was the direction to take and Alfred and I took a trip with the girls and we went to we hired a driver who was Amazer. He was Berber and um his name's Mohammed and we asked him to take us to some of the towns where we could meet with women who are running cooperatives like a really authentic because some of them are not they're not run by women for women they're sometimes you know they they're false false falsely advertised as cooperatives um so he took us on this road trip like we didn't know where we were going we were like just take us somewhere we want to go and visit cooperatives so when we walked into the cooperative in Ain Lua they were sitting there with pretty quiet it seemed like um a place that like time had forgotten we spent about a couple hours there having conversations and looking at their work and you know they made us tea and like i said we just i just really felt an immediate connection with them um yeah and that so that was the start of it Nina, I understand that in crafts in general, uh, the numbers are declining. What about the weavers in Anlua? Are young women weaving as well? 
I think maybe overall, what you see the numbers, I don't have the official numbers, but you don't have as many people involved in crafts now as you did 10 years ago. And especially we could see that amongst women, the young women are turning away because they, they have better money-making alternatives. The compensation is really low and it's hard work and that's not appealing to young women. You know, they see that their, their grandmothers and their mothers haven't benefited from weaving. And it's really unfortunate that this craft is slowly dying. It really is. And, you know, when you go to a cooperative like Ain Luh and you see that most of the women there are over 40. And they, they do have a few women that are in their 30s, but there's no one, there's no one in their 20s there. And like I said, you have this one young woman there. But if she gets married, she may not continue it. She may or may not. But I asked the girl, her name is Fatima Zahra. I asked her why she was learning to weave. And she said that she, you know, she's always been interested in weaving and that she wanted to learn. And I asked her if her friends were also interested, and she said no, that they felt, and I, and I asked her why, and she said, oh, they said that there's no money in it. And unfortunately, that's true. You know, you see that the Moroccan carpet has grown exponentially, especially in the last decade, right? You know that. I mean, you can't pick yes. up a magazine, interior magazine, without seeing a Moroccan carpet. And you would think that that, you know, that growth in that sector, in that market would translate into uh, prosperity for the, the makers, the people who are making these carpets. But it's not true because most of the market is dominated by men. And the biggest winners in the carpet game are the, the sellers. So you have the Western sellers who are profiting, and then you have the the bazaar merchants in Marrakesh and say in Fez, who are the ones who are really gaining from this carpet trade. And unfortunately, the very people that you need to make these carpets are exploited and underpaid. It's it's um you know it's sad it's it's really sad and and I think that I I wasn't aware of that you know because it, in the beginning I was buying vintage rugs uh, from bazaars in Morocco um, primarily in Fez and then slowly I started going to the markets like the souks in the rural areas and you buy directly from the makers. But when I was buying a carpet and you buy like a carpet that has been made by hand for a hundred and hundred fifty dollars, you know that something's wrong, right? You're like especially when you start to understand how long it takes. Nina, are the carpets one finds in Marrakesh and Fez typically from a cooperative? How would you go about finding out? The rugs aren't, that you see in the bazaars, the new ones, are not being, they're not made, um, they're not being produced in cooperatives. You have these big rug producers that are basically, you know, they're, they're, they're businessmen. 
and they have factories of women who are weaving, you know, whether it's not, you know, maybe it's not in a big industrial building where you have 300 people all sitting there weaving, but you have clusters of these concrete spaces all over these particular towns and villages where women are weaving. Okay. So you'll have one producer who'll have like 400 women who are working for him. Are these women paid fairly? No, they're not. They're made, they're making about, about 25 to 30 dirhams a day is what we calculated. And that's like $3, $3.50 a day. Okay. So then the producer, he'll turn around and sell his carpets to the bazaar merchant. It's the bazaar merchants who really control pricing more because they'll turn around and tell the producer, oh, no, you can't sell it to me at this rate. This is how much I want to pay for it. And then the producer you know, will get women who are poor and would otherwise have no work at all um, to weave that carpet for, you know, let's just say the $3 a day. And when you ask the women, do they feel that they're being compensated fairly? They'll say no. They'll say no. There's every single woman that I spoke to who was working for a producer, okay, all of them said to me that, they're hoping, they're praying one day that they'll make more money. But right now it's okay because they can at least feed their children and buy them school supplies. You see? Nina, are women still making carpets for their own use or is it completely commercialized now? Yes, traditionally women were weaving. This is before um, rugs became more of a commodity women traditionally were making carpets for their homes, you know, for they were, especially with Amazigh or Berber people, they were nomadic, they were living in tents, you know, they, the, the carpets were uh, shelter and they were beds, you know, a lot of Beniwarian rugs, traditionally they were used as beds. So the entire family would sleep in it and, you know, they would just, in, at night it would just be rolled up and they were like these it was like a burrito effect, <laughs> but, um, yeah, they were used as bedding, you know, and they were making these carpets for themselves. Everything started changing. I think when the French, um, protectorate was here, like in the early 1900s, things started to change and the rugs became popular and they were being exported to Europe primarily. The rug transformed and um, became a commodity and the women too are a commodity you know they're not it's they're dehumanized and the books and the literature that you read um, regarding Moroccan textiles never mention the weaver it's like you know these these textiles just happen to be you know they came into being but there's no focus on the makers and I think that many women do feel invisible. They feel invisible. They feel they don't feel respected. And um, it's 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 unfortunate. And I don't know if it's going to change at all. And but the irony is the producers and the the merchants 
they rely on the women. They need the women to make the carpet, but by not paying them fairly, they're also they're they're encouraging the the young women to go another route, you know? The marketplace often distorts the value of textiles, but in Berber culture, sheep wool and weaving are seen as baraka or blessing. In this segment, Nina explains the emotional and spiritual value, the baraka, that is part of every Moroccan carpet. Wool is seen as something divine and baraka. So baraka is something that's a divine blessing. And from the shepherd, like the shepherds that we interviewed, they would say that wool is baraka. The women say that wool is baraka because you think about wool, it brings you so many things, right? It's not only that they can, you know, that's it, it's a means to um, a monetary compensation, but it's also, it, it provides warmth, right, in the winter, and they were making their, they were making their jalabas from wool, they're making rug from wool, and um, they're also able to make a living from wool. So you could see that it not only is it considered a divine blessing in that way, but it's also considered to have like a, a to have like a, a mystical a, a, a mystical quality to it as is the loom which is interesting so the loom is like a life force and the 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 wool is a life force as well and they work together to create something with the weaver that is like so beautiful and brings about um, good luck and well-being before the the weaver, she's called Nasaja in Arabic. Um, she was highly respected, and one of the weavers was telling me this. Um, she was telling me that just even 15, 20 years ago, she remembers when she would be working at a loom that if someone were going to enter the room the space where she was working, they would take their shoes off in the way that you do, you know, when you enter a mosque here, right? So that's showing respect. Mm -hmm. And if someone had commissioned her to make a rug for their house or to weave a jalaba, she was constantly being taken care of by the person who had given her this commission. She would be fed, they would bring her lunch, they'd bring her tea, they'd make sure that she was comfortable because it was really important that the weaver be in a good place of mind and well-being as she's working on this, this, this textile that is full of a divine force and good energy. So people don't think about that. When that, that rug that you have in your house was something that someone had blessed from the very beginning. Before a woman starts her work, she blesses the loom. She blesses the carpet. She makes sure that she's always, her hands are clean. She's in good spirits before she's working. They sing songs when they work. And when you're done, they release. So they release the carpet from the loom they bless it. They baptize it. They take water. So you take water and now, you know, they just like fill up like a plastic bottle with water, but they bless the, the carpet. And what the weaver will say to the carpet is that I am giving you water now that you may drink and go to heaven. And when I go to heaven, may you give me water to drink. 
you know, when I, when I speak to people about this and how women are treated in this industry, they're usually surprised, but all they have to do is do a Google search and they find all this information, but most people don't ask. And that's why I was saying that it's important to ask questions. You know, it's important to observe. And when you purchase a rug, a small carpet, and it's only $100 or $200, you should ask why. How is that possible? I think that the more people are willing to question things, you know, the, the closer we can get to the reality of the situation and, and, and be able to impact people, people's lives in a positive way. And we just don't consume. Earlier in this episode, Nina said coming to Morocco was like a rebirth. Here she tells us why she feels this way. Her weaving partners, particularly the women of Anlua, have had a profound impact. Nina is grateful to them for their solidarity and friendship, and she's committed to helping them find a legitimate place and voice in the carpet trade. I get so much out of it. I get so much, um, and you know, when I when I go there, I look forward to being around them, and it's it's different than the way I feel. And I love working with Yehya in Fez, but with the women, it's it's a uh, it's a different feeling when I'm around them. You know, they they're when they're there, that's just being real. You know, weaving is a part of their outer lives. They don't have separate circles like men tend to have. This is work. This is home. This is you know, this is when I'm with my friends. But for women, it's all incorporating, right? So this is the the weaving is the nucleus. But it's also part of, it's also interconnected with many aspects of their lives. When I work together with them on projects, it's exciting. It's exciting, you know, to see the results and, and to see how they benefit, how I benefit. I make it a point. It's really important that when we work on projects that I always write you know, bios on each of the women, I send photographs, I tell the stories of the process, because I want my clients to understand, you know, they can't be there, but I film everything, you know, we document, we photograph, we tell stories, because my hope is that they'll pass along this information to their consumers. You know, some do, some don't, but at least I've done my job, you know, I've tried, and that's really important. I think it's really important to um, to to represent the women and to give them that voice. And that brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening in. If you'd like more information on Nina and Artisan Project, follow the links in the description of the show. And please drop me a line if you have any thoughts on this episode or on Radio Akbab Talk in general. Looking forward to seeing you next time. Bye.